Amen. Um, I'm giving you some social cues right now. Um, so when someone gets up and has a podium and they're standing and they're formally in a position that's like lecture style, I'm sitting on the back of a chair. I have my knees up. I have my computer and my notebook out. This communicates that I do not want to lecture at you for the next 45 minutes. I want to engage in a self-discovery together, um, which this is this disclaimer right out front. Um, there's lots of talk from people like Steve that say things like, Paul's a tough guy. I'm really not. I'm just a human being struggling to figure out life just like everybody else. Um, it, it's incredibly, like, not frustrating, but to think that somehow I have become a, a model of toughness. And that is, like, when I think about toughness, I think about guys like John Wayne. Um, you know, like that guy, he was tough. He could get shot 13 times and still win. Um, I've never been shot. I have been stabbed, but never been stopped, shot. So um, here's, the, here's the point. My, my point in kind of going around in that circle is simply this, is that I am a student of having spiritual grit just like you. Um, I was listening to a podcast on the way down here, and it was uh, simply on this concept of finishing well. How do you spend your life serving the Lord so that at the end you've finished well and the Lord can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, if you do regular math and figure out ages of, like, expectant life, you know, I'm only maybe halfway through this journey, and uh, I have the same desire that you have to finish well. Some of you are smirking, thinking that I'm further along than half, and that bothers me. Um, I'm not going to call you out over there, but uh, no. Um, but when you guys, so when I think of, let's just kind of do a little bit of a debrief, um, uh, just a quick conversation. When I think of uh, grit, not necessarily in the spiritual context, I grew up, I was born in the late 70s. Uh, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, kind of through junior high and high school. Obviously, I'm still here. But the, the popular TV movie programs that I was watching were things like John Wayne, Clint Eastwood. There was very much a, uh, an ideal in our culture of what uh, a man is, should behave, what he should strive to become. So like when I say the, you know, John Wayne was like my grandfather, kind of like every Sunday I'd go over to his house and he'd have old westerns on and I'd watch young John Wayne winning everything he ever did and then being kind and honorable about it. I would think, oh, there's a, there's a guy that, that I want to model my gritness after. But in your world, because I don't pretend to, even though I try sometimes to exist in your culture, I understand everything that you've grown up. Just talk to me about, so when you think about the word grit, what comes to mind from like popular culture, media, that kind of stuff? Sandpaper. Okay. All right. Literalists right over here from popular media and culture. All right. So a person. Yes. Samwise Gamgee. All right. All right. Why is he gritty? Okay. Okay. Someone else? Mike Rowe. He's like the dirty jobs guy. Okay. So what makes him gritty? Okay. 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 Captain America, the one everybody loves to hate, right? Um, the too good, good guy, um, which is really ironic. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, right. A Captain America always does what's right. Um, always... Uh, yeah, follows through. I love that guy's character. It's interesting that our culture, as a large culture, I've read actual articles about how a majority of Americans don't like him because he's too good. Um, right? You're like, yeah, I can't relate to that guy. <laughs> All, right. All right. Yeah. They want, who's, who's the bad guy that everybody likes? Loki. See? <laughs> I don't want to say anything, but that's messed up. All right. Other, anybody else? Yeah. The Marines. So in our culture, the Marines, military branch, yep. Moms. Did someone say moms? Moms. Interesting. Gritty moms. Moms are gritty. Okay, so there was something else over here. Who? You're going to have to help me, man. Don't know who that is.
Got it. Yeah. So someone who got stuff done. Well, one of the reasons we're talking about spiritual grit is not because uh, there's like this gap or because we think it's just a real popular thing or it's in the news and conversation it is right now. But believe it or not, uh, spiritual grit is a character of God. Um, when we think about grit and we think about uh, why we should have it as a part of our lives, is, is, you know, it's not just something we say, oh, that's something valuable or something good. It's because it is a piece of who God is that we want to make that a part of who we are. Does that make sense? And so as a follower of Christ, spiritual grit should become part of our character because Christ exhibited grit when he was on earth, right? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, let me, uh, there, there, well, let's just go there. Matthew 26, if you have it. This is going to kind of be our launching pad to some other thoughts uh, throughout this morning. Um, but uh, Matthew chapter 26, and it is uh, verse 36. And Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That to me is an indicative, an indication of like what is to come. Then he said to me, said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Basically be with me as I go through a very difficult circumstance and situation. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, he's not talking about a drink. He's talking about the situation of being uh, betrayed, captured by the Romans, flogged, beaten, uh, sentenced, then put up on a cross, crucified, his hands and his feet nailed to giant boards, hung up in a position where he every grasp he'd have to push up against those nails to be able to breathe. Literally, uh, it's considered the most excruciating, torturous way to be killed, and then to die and be mocked while doing it. So he's saying, I don't want that. Anybody can relate to that? Like, I'm facing some pretty difficult things in my life, Lord, and I don't want it. But then he follows up and he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. They obviously did not get the memo, like, this is a bad moment for me. I do not want to be alone, but they're sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me even for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which means that on all of us, we all, when we think about the concept of grit, we go, yeah, we want that. The problem is, is that when the reality of the situation approaches, even though the spirit is willing, what does the flesh say? The physical body, the emotions in the moment scream, absolutely not. All right. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And if you read the rest of the story, you begin to understand that Jesus was at a moment where he had to choose whether he was going to have grit and complete what his purpose and his calling and his identity demanded he complete or whether he move on and, and run a different way. Now, here's the problem with divinity, is all of us should understand that, that Jesus Christ was 100% God. Like, that is one of our theological tenets. Like, he is God. And so the immediate response is, is well, he didn't really struggle the way that, that humanity struggled. But Scripture also says that he was 100% human and that he endured all of the suffering, all the temptations, all of the things that you and I experience because it was only in that capacity that he could then, by dying a sinless death, be able to reconnect, to reaffirm our relationship with God, to basically reconcile us to him. And so even though God was, Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% man, which means he had the capacity to sin. He had the capacity to be tempted and to rebel against what he was called to do. Now, he didn't, right, because that was his choice, and he had spiritual grit, which then tells us that if Christ, as being 100% human, was able to do what he did, 
we have a model for how we can live with spiritual grit in our lives. And that actual idea that we can live a holy life as Christ lived a holy life is an important understanding for each one of us. Because most of us walk through this life with the understanding or belief that it's just not possible. Why really try? Does that make sense? When in reality, Christ is saying to his disciples, you can do and live an even better, more powerful life than I have lived. That everything that I have done, you can do. Does that make sense? That every miracle he's done, he has given authority and power to those that call him uh, Lord and Savior. That that is available to us. So, all right, let's look at this. Uh, well, let's look at a guy named Demas. Um, actually, yeah. Um, sorry, this is, again, kind of a, a self-process and a, a discussion. Let me tell you this story, and then we'll go from there. Um, I've seen grit in a lot of places throughout my life, but probably one of the best spiritual examples uh, was one of our disciples in Southeast Asia. It was a, a young man. He's actually two brothers, uh, a young lady uh, named Som Chan. So it was Dang and Dom. And I know some of you have probably heard this story before, but uh, I just can't escape it when I think about what it would have cost them had they not uh, stuck with their conviction of the relationship with God. And uh, when we lived in Southeast Asia, it was a communist, it was a closed country, and it was persecuted, which meant that being a follower of Christ had inherent physical risk. Does that make sense? That for our believers, for the disciples, the people that accepted Christ, it meant that most likely they were going to be rejected by their families. Um, they could likely lose their jobs. Um, they would probably um, not have a home or a, a place to stay, and they could be put in prison. Uh, they could be physically tortured. They could be killed. And so we saw all of those things happen during the nine years that we lived there. We saw people be uh, basically excommunicated from all of their family and their culture and their community to the extent of people being put in prison in re-education camps and, and basically uh, coming to the point of choosing life or death or Jesus. And so Dang and Dom and Somchan and Dang's wife make... Um, basically, we were living in a town called Sianquang, and things had gotten pretty intense. And in our Assemblies of God missions movement, every four years, you come out of the country to tell your stories, uh, to raise funds, and to basically communicate the need overseas. And while we were overseas, uh, the military and the government came to our home, to where these disciples were living, and they gathered them up. What that means is they came and grabbed them. Okay, they put them in vehicles, and they took them to what we would call a re-education camp. They'd done this in the entire province. They'd gathered, from what I remember, being about 100, 150 Christians, and they'd gathered everyone that they could that said Jesus was their Lord, and they brought them to a, a compound. Now, when I say compound, this is a bamboo uh, place with soldiers. It is not like a military compound here. Does that make sense? They're out in the jungle. They're isolated. But every day... Uh, this military general would come into this hut where all of these people were stuck and they were given minimum food, minimum water, and he would scream at them and he would yell at them and he would argue with them and, and tell them that they needed to betray their relationship with God. He'd accuse them of being disloyal, of betraying their country. He would threaten their lives. And at the end of his rant, he would have a piece of paper and he would essentially say, if you will simply sign your name on this paper saying you're not a Christian anymore, you can go home. And so when I was talking to Dang, basically this happened while we were gone. I came back into the country, and Dang begins to tell me this story. And so as he tells this story, I, I'm in shock and in frustration and concern for his life, and he continues. And he said, for weeks, Paul, this guy would come in, and he would scream at us, and he would yell at us. And every day that he came in, we would be more and more afraid. And then one day he walked in and he screamed and he yelled and he went through the routine. And he said, I hear that you Christians, you Christians, you have your own stories. That you tell different stories, you have different beliefs. I want to hear the stories that you have so that I can understand why you would betray your country, why you would betray your people. I remember Dang sitting across this little concrete table with me, and he, he looks at me and he says, Paul, we didn't just tell him the stories that you've told us. We preached that he might know Jesus. 
And I remember thinking, goodness, dang, because dang is literally, he's your age. I mean, he was 19 when we met him. This is four years later, so he's 23, 24 years old. He's newly married. Uh, I don't know if he, I think he had a, one son at that time. And, and he's telling me this story, and inside, you know, I'm, I'm with him because I've lived in this country. I understand what's going on, and I'm just saying, Lord, what is, you know, what is happening? And, and I'm proud and excited, but at the same time, I'm like, where is this going? And so a few days later, the same general comes in, and he's screaming, and he's yelling, and he's arguing with him, and he says, I hear that you Christians, you have different songs, that you don't sing the same songs that we sing, and I want to hear your songs. And he said, Paul, we didn't just sing our songs or tell him our lyrics. We worshiped so that Jesus would come into that place, and he might know God. And basically, for the next few days, this pattern started to repeat itself, and they could see that this general and the soldiers that were holding in there, things were shifting and changing in their own demeanor. And, and basically what happened is at the end of that week, he came in, and he came with that same piece of paper, and he went through the rant, and he went through the thing, and he said, if you Christians would just leave, I don't want you here anymore. You can't tell anybody else about Jesus, but you just have to get out of this place. And he essentially sent them home. Dang, at that uh, point, it was, I want to say, we got back in June-ish, and I kind of bewildered, looked at him, and I said, what, what happened then, Dang? He goes, well, Christmas wasn't too far away, and so we had a Christmas ceremony, a party at your house and in a couple other houses, and, and, and Paul, we had over 250 people come to our house to worship, to, to hear the story of Jesus' birth, to know him. And I remember thinking, so you didn't just like go and hide and, and stand back and, and let this thing kind of pass. You actually continued to, to reach the lost, to continue to stand in the gap and see the people around you come to know Christ. I wish I could show you some of the pictures, but Dang and I stay in touch. Uh, Facebook is an amazing thing. He sends me messages and we see pictures, but he pastors this little church in the middle of a province called Luampabong. They got like 70 little people in their community, in their village, and they're, they're pastoring. His brother's down in Vientia in the capital. They're pastoring. Somchan's up in Sienkwang. She leads a group up there. And you start to see that that moment of grit, that moment of decision, that no matter what comes, I'm going to follow Jesus. No matter what comes, I'm going to be obedient to Jesus has been able to be relived over and over in their lives. And the, the problem is, is that every time we betray a commitment or we make a choice in the opposite direction, it becomes easier and easier to betray that grit, to betray that decision. But if there comes a moment, and we see it in, throughout Scripture over and over again, in someone's life where they stand up and they say, I will follow Jesus regardless and they take a stand for some reason, that moment becomes a pillar, becomes an altar that they're able to look back on, and it moves them through the rest of their lives. Um, when I was uh, 13, four, nah, I, was, I was in eighth grade, so what is that, 13? Yeah, 14. Uh, I played basketball. I tried to play basketball. I wasn't very good, but I was a giant, and so I played basketball, right? And um, the... The long short of it is that in the tryouts, um, I was one of the, the better athletes on the team, and I expected to make the team and th for things to go well. But during the tryouts, the coach gave me some instruction, and I was frustrated, and I thought I was smarter than he is, and so I mouthed off to the coach. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but I was a bad human being at 13, and I lipped off to the coach, and in that moment, the coach decided that he didn't want that attitude on his team, and so... When tryouts were over, the team, I, I was not selected. I was cut from the team, which shocked me. I couldn't understand or grasp it. And so I remember going outside the school, um, crying on the concrete pillar in front of there, and then going home and going to my bedroom and crying there and coming to the conclusion that I wasn't ever going to play basketball again, that this was not my thing, right? Because obviously it was not my thing. I'd been cut. And my dad came to me, um, you know, my mom had told him what had happened, and he came up into my bedroom and sat down on the bed, and he kind of processed that moment with me, and I told him my conclusion is that I was done. And his response was, yeah, you could, you could possibly do that, or you could work harder than the team is working this year by yourself and try out again next year, learning the lesson of attitude um, and approach it with a different perspective and see what happens. 
And so uh, to make, a, again, a long story short, in that moment, my dad convinced me that I needed to have what I would call grit in my life. And so every day after practice or after school, when the team went to go practice, I went to a, a church gym and I would spend an extra half hour longer than those guys all by myself working through it. And again, kind of, I was in like three church leagues. I played in the Y League and I was playing basketball way more than they were. And at the end of that year, I had had nearly twice as much experience as they had because I decided to invest into that specific area. And come my freshman year, I didn't make JV or freshman squad. I made the varsity squad, but it taught me something. And, and this is the simple thing that I think that if this, uh, we're, we're kind of going in circles at the moment, but we're going to get into the actual meat of this. It taught me that grit will pay off. Does that make sense? That grit in life and spiritual grit in your walk with the Lord, that it actually has dividends, that it makes a difference. And so we're not talking about, in my mind, this is a significant area that will determine the rest of your life and your eternity. That if we're able to lean into this idea that I will be a spiritually gritty person, it will change and alter the course of your life. Does that make sense? All right. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about defining grit. Anybody got an idea what the gr grit is? The will to choose. Someone else? Persistence. Okay. Anybody else? Perseverance. Okay. Discipline. Determination. Okay, tenacity, these are all really good words. Okay, so Webster describes it as this. It's the firmness of character and indomitable spirit. I just think of that Jurassic Park dinosaur. Indomitable Rex, right? There it is. I'm really up on my movie culture. All right, firmness of character, indomitable spirit. Grit is resilience. Resilience is something we choose to develop in our lives. It is pers perseverance and passion. So hear that. It's perseverance and passion. Because in, but enthusiasm is common, but endurance is rare. Enthusiasm is common, but endurance is rare. Grit is the expression and strength of your personal character. If you are a person that doesn't have grit, it reveals your character of what is on the inside, of what your true beliefs and convictions are. So I've got this um, nephew, I won't tell you his name, but he loves the idea of having the achievement without the work, right? Anybody appreciate that? Like, I want the achievement without the work. I actually had this conversation with my son in the breakfast line. Like, <laughs> I was like, no, no, we, we're not going for the goal without the actual effort that, that happens. And one of the like shocking moments of the, the way our culture has moved for me was I went over to their house and he was so excited because he knows I'm a hunter and he's telling me about this great hunting adventure that he'd had and this monster white-tailed deer that he'd caught. And I was like shocked. I was like, holy cow, I didn't even know you like got outdoors. This is amazing. He's like, yeah, come into my room, come see it. I'm like, okay, and I walk into his room, and it's totally trash, like a 14 or 15-year-old's room definitely should be, and he walks over to the TV console, he turns on his video game, and God's honest truth, he opens up this video, like Whitetail Hunter, and he shows me his trophy room on the video game, and I looked at him, and I was like, I didn't know if it was a joke, I was like, are you, are you serious, like, you think I, I actually, like, oh, okay, great job. Like, <laughs> congratulations. The problem is, is that in our culture, we want that achievement without the effort. The problem, though, that you need to realize is that it's the effort that actually makes a difference in your identity, in your character. That when I go hunting for a moose or for a caribou, yes, I want to catch something, right? But that's only a piece of why I go out into the woods. It's the adventure of it, the experience, the challenges that will be overcome, the things that I'll learn and take back into the rest of my life. That is the true value. 
the moose meat, the caribou meat, that lasts for a few months. It ends up in the freezer. But that is not what this is about. And I think that this is one of the challenges that we face in our culture today is the misunderstanding of what grit is about. It's not about the achievement. It's about the becoming. Does that make sense? All right. So um, there are five components of grit, at least as far as there's probably way more. But um, there is a TED Talk. You guys should look into this. We were going to try to show it. Wasn't able to do it with the technology at the moment. But it's, uh, I think it's, it was in 2013. I think the lady that did it is called, her last name is Duckworth. And uh, she does a five-minute conversation on grit that is really kind of an interesting uh, expose on that. But the first component of grit that I'm able to kind of identify is courage. It's courage. Um, courage, and, and my brother, some of you guys have heard this story before, but my brother a, was a special ops Marine, and at some uh, moments I had a chance to talk to him to decompress some of his experiences over, I think he was on 11 tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, yeah, you know, I could go on and on. He's got two silver stars, like decorated war hero. But I asked him, he was telling me about one specific instance, and, and things were really bad in that moment, and people were dying. And I said, weren't you afraid? And his response was simply this. He said, Paul, courage is not the absence of fear. It is the ability to act in spite of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the ability to act in spite of fear. There's this guy named Teddy Roosevelt. You've probably heard of him. Um, he was a president. Um, in 1907, he made this statement. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive, who act, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails with daring greatly. You see, there is this, uh, there is this understanding that if you are going to have grit, there's going to be a moment where you're going to have to act in spite of fear. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, recognized the moment of fear. He faced fear just like we do. He faced anxiety. He faced depression. He faced every facet of that that we can experience. And in that moment, he chose courage. Okay, so the second component is what I would call conscientiousness. Um, and this is a little bit, you, you can figure out how to spell it. Sorry, it's not up on the screen. Um, just kind of what I do in those words is I write the first four letters and then just scribble at the end. And that kind of works out. And what I mean by this is that uh, grit is completion-oriented versus dependable. Now hear this, because grit has dependability, it has faithfulness attached to it. But what, in other words, this means that um, it is the finality of success that keeps grit going. D does that make sense? It is the finality that allowed Jesus to climb on that cross, that there would be uh, something that would be done. And everything that I've read and understood about this concept of having grit in our culture and in our own persons uh, and in spirituality is recognizing that there will be one day where we stand before Christ, there is a goal to be completed. There is a, a finish line to be reached. If you can keep that in the front view of where you're at, you will be able to keep moving forward because you understand that one day it will be done. It will matter. Um, if you just think that this is just a process and we just do it over and over and over again, eventually that will not be able to carry you into the rest of your life. Um, the, the way, and this is a little bit crass, but perhaps a better way to put it would be this, is that uh, grit means that you're a racehorse and you're not a mule or an ass that simply walks up and down lines. Does that make sense? That you are actually in it to win it. All right, so the third one is that there is long-term goals and endurance, which means follow through, through. Achievement is the product of talent and effort. The latter effort is a function of the intensity, direction, and duration of one's exertion. 
towards a long-term goal. Malcolm Gladwell, he's written a bunch of books. If you get a chance to read him, uh, he's outstanding. But one of my favorite, I think, is called Outliers. And in there, he describes what it takes to be an expert in any field. Uh, it's 10,000 hours. So if you spend eight hours a day or 20 hours a week, 10 years to become an expert in any field, to be proficient, to be an Olympic athlete, to, to go in, in that kind of quality of, of expertise and mastership. The problem is, is that you can do that. You can spend 20 hours a week for 10 years and not be an expert. You can have that kind of an investment and not be at the top of the game uh, in whatever game you choose to play. And, and the conclusion from the different research that I've read is simply this, is that those that are spending time uh, must have a purpose behind it. There must be a reason for the endurance. Otherwise, you're just walking in those lines. The fourth one is what I would call resilience or optimism. Uh, again, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. It was an audiobook I was listening to. Uh, this is really important for you to understand. Um, and I'm going to get on a little bit of a bandwagon right here. But um, I believe that humanity is resilient and not fragile. Does, do you guys understand what I mean by that? Uh, we have grown up, you have grown up, uh, and I'm going to distinct separate myself from this because we were not as safe when I was growing up because we didn't have car safety belts in the backseat of cars when I was a kid. I got to climb into the back window. We didn't have car seats for kids. You know what I mean? There were no helmets for bikes. If you cracked your head, it was your own fault. Um, you know, that was just part of the, the world that I grew up in. It was a different experience. But we have grown up in the safest world that has ever existed. If you grew up in the United States, this is the safest place in all history of humanity. And yet we have more anxiety about the future and danger than we've ever had. Right? So... The problem is, is that we live in a world that cherishes and values this concept of safety. But humanity and the development of your personality, your character, your walk with God demands hardship. Do you understand that it is the hardship that creates character? That it is the pain and the suffering that gives you perspective to be able to walk through life and trust Jesus and be able to encounter him in a, in a, in a real and a powerful way. So here's the problem, or the, maybe the challenge that I should give you, is where in the Bible does Jesus say, be safe? No. In fact, he says, I want you to do this, and guess what? They're going to imprison you, they're going to beat you, they're going to kill you and your children, and I still want you to go do it. There's not safety in Christianity. And I think that's one of the, the, the core understandings of what it means to be gritty is that I'm willing to step out and take risks because I know that safety is not the value that I'm trying to cherish. My wife and I, uh, we kind of fell. When we came back to Asia, from Asia to the United States, you kind of fall back into your own culture and you kind of start doing these things. And I recently found myself and my wife telling our kids as they would go out to drive or to do different things is, hey, be safe, you know, it, which isn't a bad thing, right? But there was this epiphany moment recently when I, I was like, no, 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 stop. I don't want my boys to be safe. That's, that's not a value. And, and I literally pulled my wife aside. I said, we're not going to say this anymore. We're going to say, don't die, okay? <laughs> we're going to say, don't go to the hospital. We're going to say, don't get arrested by the police, right? Um, right? But what we're going to go tell, we're going to tell them actively, go have an adventure. Go make a memory. Go do something that that will allow you to figure out the problem that you got in so that you can develop the character to get out of your own problems, right? Uh, there is this necessity in our culture to engage. Now, I'm not, I'm not one to advocate stupidity, okay? Uh, I believe that one of the reasons we suffer in this world is because we do, we do stupid things, all right? But the, the reality is, is that if we live with a safe mindset, we will struggle with anxiety and, and fear the rest of our lives. We cannot, that cannot be the value and the way that we measure what we do. Um, anyway, so we are not fragile. We are resilient, which is that old saying of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, okay? Um, I believe that wholeheartedly, that if we are able to overcome 
the challenges that we face, we become more and more resilient in our lives. And then this is the last one, and then uh, we're going to talk about the things that I believe will help develop grit in your life. Um, and this is, I think, one of the most important things, and I mentioned it earlier, is that ex- uh, grit is excellence, not perfection. Meaning that when you understand that grit is about an attitude and not an end game, meaning that grit is designed to help me become a better person and I'm able to develop the grit in my life, that that will allow you to continue to fail and to move forward instead of seeing the necessity of perfection in your life. Uh, The attitude is far more forgiving, allowing and embracing failure and vulnerability on the ongoing quest for improvement, and it allows for disappointment and prioritizes progress over perfection. Grit is an attitude, and to paraphrase a guy named Tennyson, you guys have probably all had to read him, is that we should be seeking, striving, finding, and never yielding. Can't believe none of you guys mentioned Braveheart when I was talking about grit. I love that blue-faced guy. He's literally being gutted, right, on that stone table. There it is. I knew it was there somewhere. Freedom. Braveheart? William Wallace, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, Never yielding. Seeking, striving, finding, never yielding. Let's pause here. You guys got any questions, and then we'll, we'll talk about some ways to develop grit. No questions? Other basketball. Uh, my a spiritual moment uh, was when we were getting on the plane. There were there were two. So everybody wants to be a missionary. Nobody wants to go. It's kind of like everybody wants Jesus. Like the, what A Rod said about his family. Everybody wants to have that salvation through his, the loss of his family. Nobody wants to give theirs. And I I love the idea of being a missionary because it's cool, right? And I love the idea of being like what I would call a special ops missionary. I want to go undercover, be 007, hide in a communist country, tell people about Jesus. I'm like, it's like the best of both worlds. I get to live that crazy adventure for Jesus. And um, until like the night before I got on the airplane, and then it kind of a wave kind of came over you, and you're like, oh, snap. I'm getting on a plane, and I've got two little babies, and my wife is going, and I've never been there before. And they say people die in these places, and I think there's malaria and dengue fever, and what am I doing? (laughs) And there is somewhere in the deep annals of our basement in some tub a video that I made a a selfie video before selfie videos existed, like it was with an actual camera. I think it's tape, too. You know, it's it's a tape thing. Uh, Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) And it is me talking into the camera for like an hour arguing with myself, crying, trying to figure out if this is the right thing to do. Um, And then constantly coming back to, no, this is what the Lord has spoken to me when I was 13, when I was 16, when I went to college at 18, when I was 21. Like, this this has been the progression and the trajectory of what he said. And if I'm going to step into it, I've got to get on that plane. And there was definitely what I would, the Garden of Gethsemane kind of night for me. Um, the other moment was about three months after landing in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, if you've not visited there, it's a spectacular place. I did not think so at the moment. Um, I am like wilderness, wilds kind of person. Love Alaska. Laos is like, when we were there, the fourth least developed nation in the world, which means National Geographic, grass huts, bamboo, walking jungles, you know, walking with people, literally walked into videos where they'd never seen a white person before, a Caucasian, uh, never seen a camera, take a picture, show them the picture, they freak out because they think I've stolen their soul and put it in a box. I mean, those kind of moments. It was super awesome. Um, We sorted the whole, we're capturing your soul stuff. But uh, we did, yeah, it was was an awkward moment. Um, But three months in, we were stuck in Bangkok, 
Thailand, which is a mega city of over 14 million. If you count the slums, they say it could be up to 21 million. Uh, there's no grass, no trees. It's constant pavement, 100 and some odd stinking degrees. And we were far away from our call in that moment. And I could not, I was going through horrible culture shock. Um, I couldn't, you know, I'm a very like self-independent kind of person. I couldn't order water. I couldn't find a toilet. Like, I, yeah, life was hard in that moment. And I remember locking myself in the bathroom in our tiny little apartment on the ninth floor in Taiping Towers on Ekamai Soyisipok. And, and I locked, I'm like 26, 27 years old, something like that. And I've literally like locked myself in a toilet. Um, and uh, my wife, two little babies outside, one's crying, Madeline's running around, she has no idea what's happening, and I'm like, I'm done, tagging out, can't do this anymore, these people are crazy, I don't like this, I knew this was a mistake, and um, I got on, we called it Skype back then, and I Skyped my dad, and I was like, dad, I can't do this, how do I, how do I get out of this without losing all of my honor? Because that was a big deal for me, my pride. And I was trying to figure out, you know, if I got some weird disease, will they let me come home? <laughs> if I get in a car accident, like how do you, like all the thoughts of how do I get out of this without losing face? And uh, my dad just was calm. He just said, you know, it was remind me of that basketball conversation. He said, uh, you know, explain it, talk to me through it. He said, okay, maybe you stick it out for a little bit longer. I think, you know, if you, it'll get better if you just stick with it. And he said something to me that he'd said earlier in my life. There was another moment, a uh, marquee moment. But he said, Paul, you've been given a box. And it's a small box. Your world is small right now. But I need you to basically use every inch of the box that God has given you. Um, you know, you're not where you want to be. You're not doing what you want to do. And you may be stuck in this country for a year, year and a half. It ended up being 18 months. Um, and what you need to understand is, is that you can't always control the things that are around you, but you can control what you do in those circumstances. And so eventually I locked the door, walked out of the bathroom, stopped crying. And uh, I, all these stories are about me crying, but I do cry. Um, and, uh, and, and basically said, okay, well, if we're here, let's, let's make it worthwhile. And we started learning Thai. Crystal started going to work down in the slums with, there was a ministry working with some of the prostitutes. And instead of letting men buy their time, the ladies would go down and buy their time and minister to them and, and try to help them and get them out of the circumstances. I started to go down every night into the slums. And the slums were like cardboard boxes. And you'd walk through and you'd just, without Thai, I'd just start praying for people. They had no idea what was going on. I'd just start praying because I didn't know Thai at the time. But there was this moment of recognition that, I can choose to run and go back and everything in me wants to, or I can continue to push and see what will happen. And it became the greatest adventure of my life. It became the fulfillment. And, and here's the thing. Those moments unlock opportunity for character in other areas. Does that make sense? When you push through those moments, it unlocks the next. When you don't push through those moments, the next is impossible. Salvation of humanity happened because Jesus pushed through the cross. Without the cross, that doesn't happen. All right. Um, bummer. I've had this Bible for like 20 years and I've never done that. Um, that makes me unhappy. I'm not going to cuss. It's all right. The carpet has had coffee before, right, Steve? There it is. All right. We need to talk about this. We got like five minutes because this is really important. This is where I wanted to go the whole time. Um, thank you, Alex. Um, here it is. Uh, grit is chosen. So this, these are things I believe about grit, and, and you need to like embrace these philosophies, truths about developing grit in your life. And I've got like 20 Bible stories that I can prove this with, but we don't have time to. Um, grit is chosen. It isn't something that we are born with. It's not something some people have and other people don't. You choose it. And it's one of these things, we talk about this a lot up in Fairbanks, is what I would call um, um, predetermined decisions. No, what is it called? Someone help me. Anybody? No, it's uh, basically decisions you make before the moment so that you, when you get to that moment, you don't have to make that decision based on emotion. Premeditated. Premeditated Nah, it's not it either. But yes. 
you've got the definition figured out for yourselves. All right, number two, grit requires failure and hardship and struggle. You cannot have grit without those things. It requires failure, hardship, and struggle. If you don't have these things, you cannot have grit. When we open up the doors, like one of the things I wrestle with all the time with my children is I want to make their lives easy and pleasant, right? That's what a loving parent father does. And yet there's moments that I have to say, no, life needs to suck for you right now because I know that in 10 years you need this miserable experience. I've got a wonderful, one of my children, I won't tell you who they are, but in the recent history of the world, uh, they went to the restroom and looked up answers for a test, right, while they were in the middle of a test. And we call that cheating where I come from, right? <laughs> it's not cool. And the came to my and my wife's attention, and the demand was, you will go and talk to your teacher and confess what you've done. And they're like, absolutely freaking not. And I'm like, you will or I will, because you're going to learn this. You're going to learn that that's not who we are, and that's not how we live. Now, is that kind? Is that easy? Is that miserable? All of those things, right? It is kind. It's not easy. It is miserable. Anyway, moving on. Grit is celebrated. This is super really important for me. Uh, you get what you celebrate. Our modern culture celebrates um, all sorts of horrible things. I asked who the most famous rebel or enemy guy is in Loki. Everybody was like, Loki, this is a problem. Like legitimately in my soul, this grieves me. Did you know in the 1920s, the movies were not allowed to lift up villains? Like that was part of the culture of, our, of the United States is that villains could not be glorified, period. If you watch those old westerns, they cannot be likable because they did not want robbers and thieves and evil people to be likable in our culture. Another thing our culture celebrates is idiot dads. Thanks, daughter. <laughs> You guys haven't met Madeline. That's my daughter, right? <laughs> but think about this. Our culture celebrates morons for fathers. Our culture celebrates taking the easy way out. I've talked to so many young people who's just like, yeah, I just don't want a stressful life. That is not a value that you find in Scripture. Oh, my gosh. I said I wasn't going to lecture you, but I am. All right. So do we celebrate grit as a culture? In this culture? That's what I'm talking about. In Chi Alpha culture, amongst your friends, do you champion that or do you champion the easy way out? All right. Grit is, uh, grit is not safe. How are you guys doing? I've totally, like, missed it. Grit requires fa failure. Grit is practiced. Okay, grit is practiced, grit grows. So it's a muscle. You want to grow that muscle, you practice it. You practice it in the little things. I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous. When I was a kid, I had this idea I wanted to be a tough human being. I was scared of the dark, so I would bury myself at the end of a sleeping bag and force myself to stay in there without a flashlight because I wanted to overcome a fear. Some of you are like, yeah, I've done that. I mean, literally, my brother, we come from the same cloth. He was terrified of spiders, and so he would crawl underneath the crawl space of our house, and he would put on all of his winter clothes, duct tape his neck, and he would force himself to engage spider webs. Oh, See, he's like, ah, not happening. But what did that turn into? A, a decorated war hero, right, who's really not afraid of anything. Anyway, moving on. Grit is practiced. Grit is celebrated. We talked about that. Grit is not safe. C.S. Lewis says this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he's asked if, if Aslan is safe. He's like, safe. He's not safe, but he's good. God is not safe. Christianity is not safe, but it's good. Okay, moving on. Grit is, uh, is part of our Christian culture, uh, meaning this. You cannot do grit alone. So, what did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He grabbed three of his best butts. He drags them into the loneliest place that he can find. And as he prays and literally sweats blood because he has so much stress, 
he has three guys that are supposed to be there and who are saying, I've got your back as you walk through the most difficult circumstance of your life. My dad, in all of those moments in my life, and I've had other moments where other people have done the same thing, who said, yeah, you can do that, but if you stick with this, imagine what God can do. You see, we need each other. We need each other to push through. Um, I've got other stuff, but let me read this last verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. It says, but he said to me, my grace, this is the Lord speaking, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon, you, upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The men and the women of the Bible are no different than you. Everything that the Apostle Paul went through and he was able to remain steadfast in his convictions even unto death, that is a capacity and a calling that each and every one of us have. Listen to me. I have predetermined, premeditated the decision in my life that when the moment comes where someone asks me to choose Christ or death, I will die. I have premeditated the decision in my life that when says, someone says Christ or your family, my family gets to I don't know how to say that with my daughter being here, gets to die. Does that make sense? But, but those things are there, understanding that in those moments, Christ's grace, Christ's power, Christ's authority is enough. Right? All right, let's pray. I've gone way over, as usual. No big deal. Everybody's plans accordingly, right, Steve? There you go. Jesus, we love you. Um, Lord, I pray that you will take this imperfect conversation um, these random thoughts that, that you would somehow uh, instill in us this attitude, this culture, this, this character. We talk about love and joy and peace, but Lord, we forget about like things like patience and long-suffering. Lord, we want long-suffering in our lives. We don't want suffering, but we want to be able to walk through that, knowing that after we get through the valley of the shadow of death, we will have walked with you. But Lord, we somehow, when we're walking it through the high moments, fail to recognize that we need you. And sometimes it's those moments where we're going through the most difficult circumstances that you become most real and most evident. Jesus, that we would be a culture that defies our world's culture. That we say, no, we want to be different, not just because we love each other well, not just because we can have more fun on accident than, we, than other people have on purpose, but because we're willing to do the hard things that change eternity. Lord, we love you in your name. Amen. All right, take.